I think this is one of the big challenges we have in veterinary medicine is we don't set a goal. The goal is to survive every day and just get through it. The goal isn't, hey, where am I going to take this group of phenomenally talented or high potential individuals over the next three years that would make me proud? Welcome to the Veterinary Financial Podcast, where we discuss financial freedom and whole life success. I'm Meredith Jones, an emergency vet in D.C. And I'm Phil Zeltzman, a board-certified small animal surgeon in Pennsylvania. We would like to thank our beloved partners. First, we have five elite partners, Care Credit, the popular third-party payment, Royal Canin, maker of fine pet food, Televet, a platform that offers telemedicine, remote payments, and communication tools for clients. Galaxy Vets, a new corporate group that allows all employees access to equity in the company. And Eckerd Enterprises, which offers a way to invest passively through what they call mineral rights, which is essentially oil and gas. And then we have our gold partner, Vetex International, which is an amazing group and they help vets learn the professional skills needed to thrive in practice. So thank you to our partners. Our guest today is Dave Nichol. He is a veterinarian, a practice owner, a world-famous speaker, book author, and the founder of FedEx International. Dave, welcome to the show. Awesome to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. So, Dave, so you recently published a study called Leadership Actions and Their Effect on the Veterinary Practice. So what were the goals of the study and what makes it unique? So we, I, or I should say I, have had a long time fascination with leadership, uh, driven, driven initially by my ineptitude at leadership. Uh, you know, I thought I was great until I realized I wasn't. It's like the Dunning-Kruger effect just gets us all, doesn't it? And so I ended up going on a, a deep dive into what good leadership looked like. And so I was fascinated by this. And so, I've, you know, I've done an awful lot of reading on the matter, but there really wasn't a lot of veterinary relevant literature that was out there. And so I thought, well, you know, first of all, there's two terms in, in the title of this study that are notoriously hard to define for people. One is leadership. The other is culture. We sort of get that they're important, but we don't really have a great framework or model, mental model. We've got lots of role models and lots of impressions of what leadership is, but they're not necessarily good or they're not necessarily appropriate or they're not necessarily from useful places. And culture is even harder to define sometimes than leadership. Like what is culture? Because it's so incredibly linked to uh, organizational outcomes. It is an organic being in of itself, but it's nothing tangible. You can't put your finger on it and touch it. So the motivation behind it was to try and put some definitions around what does leadership look like in a very practical sense, because you may have noticed that veterinarians don't have an awful lot of time on their hands. And so there's an awful lot of components that go into leadership as a bucket. And what we wanted to do was to identify certain aspects of leadership and solidify and crystallize what those things were in the brains and the minds of people in leadership positions in practice. And then we wanted to tie or, or attempt to tie, like that was our, our hope, is that we we're going to be able to tie a direct link between investing in certain time, energy, and certain actions and an out, uh, you know, a tangible outcome on this thing called culture. 
and probably that's the start of a much bigger piece of work around defining culture a little bit more clearly and also linking culture to bottom line although that to be fair has been done in umpteen studies in the wider world so i you know i don't think there's an awful lot of doubt about it but there's a question of you know we we take as read that leadership good leadership leads to good culture and that good culture is generally considered better performance in a practice but we don't really know what good leadership means and so that was really the aim of the study was to try and put some definitions around what good leadership might be in a practical way that people can use in vet practices very good thank you before we we go into less important topics can you remind us where that sexy accent is from <laughs> it's, it's 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 from a lot well it started out from Glasgow a long time ago, but it very quickly, when I was only two weeks old, I, I took the very bold move to move to St. Andrews, you know, with my parents. And so it's a Scottish accent, but it's a Scottish accent that's gone via London and then Sydney and an awful lot of time spent in the States as well. So it's, it's I don't know, it's turned into this sort of Scottish mid-Atlantic sort of thing that, you know, people like it. So, you know, but I'm claiming Scottish for sure. People do like it. <laughs> okay, so mo moving on to a less important question, going back to this study, what do you consider were the main findings? Okay, well, there were the things we were looking to try to prove, and there were the things that jumped out as an absolute shock to us when we looked at the numerical values. So I guess the, the things that we found, and, and the first thing was, we were able to, to make a direct line link between practices that invested in certain actions we were able to put make a link between how you know how that impacts really positively on the practice in a, a quantitative fashion so we were able to demonstrate a number for practices that did not really invest in four leadership actions and we were able to look at the same you know it wasn't the same practices but we were able to see the difference in that number in practices that did tend to invest in those actions so the first thing there is what were the four actions and then the second thing really is what were the impacts of those actions and so the the four things that jumped out were firstly that that practices that have good cultures tend to have these four things happening pretty much all the time thing one is that they've got a clear vision now gosh we're just stumbling in all the vague things in in vision what's this thing vision and so we'll come to that i expect but know that a practice needs a very clearly articulated vision and the most important thing about a vision is that it, it is a unifying a sigil if you like you know it's like we're, we're planting our sigil in the middle of the battlefield and going this is our coat of arms this is who we are this is what we stand for if you like that crowd around this sigil and let us then go do battle and smite down our foes in a worthy fashion and that's what vision, amongst other things, gives you. It's, it's clarity of purpose. And the other thing that, that I think vision gives you is it takes you away from this feeling like you're on a treadmill in veterinary medicine. So we all know the cases are endless. The amount of work is endless. Like you would never be done. Uh, there's no start, middle, and end to, to doing veterinary medicine. But there is a start, middle, and end to a mission. And a mission is part of a, a vision. And so it puts definitions around something that you set out to do. And that means you can actually tell people very clearly, we are going to do this in this time frame. It's going to be exciting. This is why we're doing it. Would you like to be part of that? Rather than, 
hey, we're going to be doing veterinary medicine for forever. We've no real idea, no any reason why we're doing it anymore. It's just the thing we did because that's what we went to university to do. And we're going to do it until we burn out and fall over in a heap. Do you want to join us? There's a difference in those two pitches, right? So vision is really important. The second thing was, and these are not actually in order, and you'll see why in a second, but time management. And, and not, not necessarily in a traditional sense, but good cultures had leaders who understood two things, the value of time and how to prioritize their time effectively to work on the things that were valuable. And that probably needs a little bit of unpacking as well. But practices where you have leaders who are completely committed to the hamster wheel of clinical work that do not have time for other things end up not having any capacity to deal with those other things. And so a lot of the things that attack or damage culture just happen. You know, culture becomes an unintentional thing. And so that, that's a problem for time stressed or, or time deficient leaders. The third category that jumped out was toxic staff behavior. So if you had toxic teammates, that was a guaranteed way to sink your culture. It really almost doesn't matter how many you have. And if you've got lots of toxic teammates, they're probably much happier with each other because they're toxic. And at least they've got a clear vision. It's nothing to do with your practice. It's all to do with their own individual visions, but at least they're happy fighting each other. If you've got one toxic team member, that can change the, the dynamic of an otherwise harmonious team. It's got that level of impact. So it's a weird one, but you just can't afford to have it or put up with it or let it, let it happen. And then the last part was hiring ability. So people who were good at hiring tended to score better for cultures, which seems you know, fairly self-explanatory. But what that said was, there's probably 20 things that you could group under a, a banner of this is leadership. But what we wanted to do is go, well, what are the most important things? We want to be able to give time-stressed practice owners and managers a bit of an 80-20 help here and say, if you only worked on these things, what would happen to your culture? Would it be a good thing? And so that's what then jumped out from the study. We, we were then able to look at numbers uh, that were associated with those things. And then, you know, that's where it got really exciting. And then it got also exciting about, well, what did we learn that we didn't expect to show up as well? All right. And we'll have to make sure that we get to those things in this discussion. So you talked about a clearly articulated vision. And so what makes up a practice vision and why is it important? Yeah. So there are many definitions of what vision are. I looked at loads of practice mission statements and they all get very confused. And so for, for me, a vision is a very practical thing. It's not an easy thing to produce, but it's a very practical thing. And that's, that's kind of an important thing. A vision which just stays up in your head is a hallucination. That's not real. A vision statement is something that is articulated. It's purposeful. You've gotten out of your head. It's on a bit of paper in front of you. And that's, that's, that can be version one, but it's out of you. And now it's something real. We can work on that. A vision should consist of three parts. There needs to be a purpose. There needs to be a mission. There needs to be values. Now, how often do you hear vision statements being vision, mission, and values? And when you look at a statement that structures as vision, mission, and values, I challenge you to tell me what's the difference between the vision part and the mission part. And when you read those things, they're almost ubiquitously airy-fairy, buzzword bingo, mumbo-jumbo, meaningless rubbish that does nothing to help anyone know what they're doing. And I'll also guarantee you that they sit in a drawer 
gathering dust or paper clips. They're not brought to life in any meaningful way in the business. And so another way of looking at that is to say, well, actually, no, we've got a vision which consists of a purpose, mission, values, which means it's got a why, it's got a what, and a how. And your why needs to be, the best analogy I can come up with for this is that your why is like, imagine you're stood at point A on a landscape and, and up in the sky, you see a true North star and you're like, man, that's the star. That's the direction for me. I am going to go that way. That's my inspiration. That's my true North. Boom. That's your purpose. It's the big thing in the sky and the purpose, it could last for a hundred years. It could arch out across 10 different business ideas. It comes from a very deep place of motivation. That's the thing. That's where the fire in your belly comes from. The mission is much more practical. And the mission in its most simple sense is simply a top level objective for your business. When all of the work comes together, what is it that everyone is trying to, to do in this giant pileup of a veterinary practice? Well, let's reverse engineer that and start with what would look good for us and over what time frame. So it's a, it's a smart goal. Okay, specific, measurable, achievable. Mm, audacious. I prefer that. Should give you butterflies and goosebumps. It should certainly be relevant, relevant to you, relevant to your skill set, what you want to achieve. And obviously it does need a time limit because you can build project teams around time limits quite effectively. And it's quite interesting when you look at the work of Tuckman, for example, who did the forming, storming, norming, performing, and adjourning. You know, that's all sort of based around sort of project work. Like as human beings, we're not really meant to show up and just do this one project for the rest of our days, but that's sort of what veterinary medicine feels like. So I really like the fact there's a mission and that mission might be three to five years, typically. If you look at a company like Mars Corporation, they have a 50 year mission statement. Their executives have to do a plan, a business plan for 50 years time. Now that's a hell of a future exercise. I'm not saying that's a good idea. I mean, I really don't think planning beyond three years is a particularly easy idea. But my businesses are set up to plan on a five-year cycle. And it's really serious for the first three. And it's really, really serious for the first one. But heck, if COVID's taught us anything, that it's, you probably shouldn't be really, really, really serious about very much in your life. But you should certainly make plans. Obviously, I know I'm speaking to two financial gurus, and you should definitely be serious about that. But that aside, have some flexibility. So, so your mission is your what, what are you going to achieve? Your purpose is why the hell you're even doing it in the first place. And then the last part is incredibly important that those are your values and your values are about, okay, how are we going to do this? And the values for me are the, the foundation of the behavioral code that we're going to base our whole culture upon. So when people say, what is culture? Culture is simply the summation of all the actions, the interactions, the behaviors, the things that become the norm, the way we do things around here, whether they're intentional or unintentional, that pile up over time and they become codified in the behaviors and the actions of the team. And if you've got a set of values, that is a really, really, in fact, it's the only way I know to intentionally manage this. Because let's say, Phil, let me ask you a question. And Meredith, I would like you to answer this question as well. Tell me what's one of your important values. What things matter to you deep down in the soul of your core? What things, if this is there in your life and you get to live this, it makes you feel really good. What would one of those things be? I thought I was supposed to ask the questions here. <laughs> Don't deflect. Um, I would say to make a difference. Okay, making a difference. There's a nice value. Okay. Um, Meredith, what would your answer be? Okay. Well, I mean, I guess I could say constant growth 
Okay, growth. Perfect. Okay, so making a difference in growth. Now, Phil's version of making a difference might not be my version of making a difference. So what's important to, to then do is to say, well, what do you mean by that, Phil? And what's nice is if you can get three descriptor sentences out of that one value, you've suddenly put some tangible dimensions around what making a difference means around here. Does it mean helping old ladies walk across the road? Does it mean helping veterinary professionals be able to have a 401k that sustains them later on in their life? You know, what does that mean? That needs to be defined. You can have too many values. That was one of the mistakes I used to make because I had 13 values in my business. I was like, try getting another human being to line up with your 13 values and hire anybody that's good enough. You know, you're looking for a clone. So we condense that down to about six values and we expand those into maybe three descriptor sentences each. And then suddenly you've got a behavioral code. Those three things, purpose, mission, and values, that's what makes up your vision. That's not a small piece of work. That takes energy, which then leads into why it's so important to be able to make time and prioritize time. Because I would classify that as being $100,000 an hour work to sit and work through that. But most Bentley Price owners or leaders are working on at worst $10 an hour admin tasks that they're paying somebody else to do for them, or more likely $1,000 an hour clinical generating tasks like doing dentals or doing yet more clinical stuff coming in. Meanwhile, the culture's left to unintentionally drift along or become the culture of personality. And it's the person who's the meanest or the loudest wins, which is how you end up with sort of bullying cultures and cliques and practices. That's brilliant advice. So just in case a listener or practice leader does not have a written good quality vision statement, where, where do they start? How do you I, start the process? I love the, I love the just in case. It's like such a such it's it's your glorious understatement as always, Phil. One of my favorite things about you. So I think the, the start point is ask yourself three questions. Why the heck am I doing this? Why am I really doing this? I call this peeling the onion game because when I work with people through this, their first answer is I want to do it to help the animals. It's always I want to do it to help the animals. Wake up and save the animals right in my shirt. If that, was the, if that was true, we'd all be doing it for the same purpose. But actually, when you scratch underneath the surface, there's actually a whole bunch of other reasons that were there. So for me, it actually wasn't ever about the animals. I, I love animals. I like animals. I love helping them. But it was always about the people. It was always about growth. And that's how I ended up in VetEx eventually. I still want to practice, but I don't work in the practice because I can create the conditions for other human beings to thrive. That's my why. Like I want to help humans get along so workplaces thrive. And, and that word thrive is in the, the vision statement for my practice as well. That's baked in because it's a why. So I think it's about getting really authentic with who we are because we can't be anybody else and not worrying about what anybody else's reason to do veterinary medicine is. Worry about what your reason is. You know, and I have one of my clients and she won't mind me saying this, Sarah Vineyard uh, over in California sure you, you may know. You know we worked for ages on our, our mission statement and and actually what came to the surface was that she wants to create this incredible women-led small group of practices in, in California where there's a group of empowered female practice owners come together and create this this network of practices and she wants to lead the way in doing that and that would make her really happy. So there you go. Boom. She's a vet. She cares deeply about animals. But it's her vehicle for this other why, which is about creating these opportunities for women. 
And the same is true. Like everyone will have a slightly different why. It's really important to define that. So that's, that's thing one is get up close with your why and play the onion game. And the way you do that is just to go, okay, why are you in veterinary medicine? Well, it's this. Okay, well, why does that matter? And you keep going. And after three or four whys, you're getting there. But you know when you get to the right whys because you feel the emotional connection to it. I always get goosebumps. When we get to the why, I can see it in the person I'm working with. There's a change. There's a softening. There's a, there's a connection moment. And it, you can just sense it. It's, it's a really incredible, powerful moment. And that's why it's so important to do it. Because when you connect to your real why, you will walk through burning buildings to make sure that thing happens. And it gives you a big reservoir of energy to work with. The mission is a bit easier, actually. The mission is just, what are we going to do? Like, let's set a time frame to do this thing. And I'm going to use a ridiculous example, but Elon Musk and SpaceX. There is a guy who sent out a really brilliantly articulated, whatever you think of him, it's a brilliantly articulated purpose and mission. What's his purpose? To make human beings an interplanetary species. Mm. What's the mission? Well, actually, he's had several submissions along the way, which is the point of the mission. You can join them up to do some really crazy cool stuff. The first mission was we just want to make going into orbit affordable because the space programs run out of money. This is we're not going to be interplanetary if if we don't have a space program of some kind. So how do we how do we do this? How can we colonize Mars, however bonkers that may be? without putting probes and telemetry and stuff that can go to Mars and learn about it so we can figure some of the problems out. We're not just going to rock up and have a party. So we need this just reusable rocket system and the shuttle was defunct and NASA was out of money. So what did he do? He designed rockets that can go up into, into space and land back on the launch pad simultaneously with another booster rocket while he's landing a third one on a drone ship out in the Atlantic or the Gulf of Mexico. That is demented. Like, I don't know if you watched the SpaceX <laughs> launches when he, when he put the Tesla into orbit, which is a grotesque bit of space vandalism, I'm, I'm quite sure. But the, the sequence where he's landing those booster rockets simultaneously on the pad looked like it was something out of Thunderbirds. I mean, it didn't look real to the point where if you hadn't had people viewing that, you would have called bullshit on it. So what's he doing now? He's building, by his own words, the big effing rocket ship to put humans into space. And look at the way he approaches the problem. We're, we're, we're now going to put a massive carrier vehicle in space that's going to become our shuttle to Mars. That's the next part of the mission. I love the way he approaches it. It took them to Starship 10 to get the thing not to explode or create a very expensive crater in the Texas desert. But every time there was progress and he kept at it. I mean, it's remarkable what that single focus does. Compare that to veterinary medicine, where there's no end point to this. We're just doing veterinary medicine. Why? No wonder we're burning out left, right, and center, and we lack inspiration. We can do this. We've just got to get a bit more imaginative and connect with some purpose and figure out why we're doing it and what it is we're going to do. And then it's okay if we change direction after that. And it doesn't have to be a stupid 50-year plan or a, a batshit crazy idea to put human beings on Mars. But if it helps you build a team and it helps you chunk down your career into three or five year slots, then that's really important from a positive psychology point of view as well. Because if you look at positive psychology in the PERMA model framework, one of the most important things is accomplishment. And a big part of accomplishment is goal setting. And I think this is one of the big challenges we have in veterinary medicine is we don't set a goal. The goal is to survive every day and just get through it. The goal isn't, 
hey, where am I going to take this group of phenomenally talented or high potential individuals over the next three years that would make me proud? And I think if we thought about our practices in those terms, we might find some really inspiring stuff and we might take an awful lot more joy in the moments of growth and move through it and not just look at, hell, we just got through another day and, and we survived. Um, there's a lot more high five moments when you know why they're happening and you recognize the growth towards the, the shorter term objective. That's amazing. I love the thought of our practice leaders thinking about, okay, what over the next three years would make me proud, you know, and I, I don't know how many people are doing that right now, you know? So you talked about practice owners, medical directors, practice managers, practice leaders in general. You talked about them devoting more time to leadership priorities and not clinical priorities and not administrative work, right? And so how much time should they devote to leadership priorities? Okay. It's it's one of the, the million dollar questions, really. I want to share a stat with you that, that came out of the study that we did. But basically, 75% of practice owners believe they've got no time for leadership activities. 75%. Ooh. 44.7% of practice owners have no vision, according to this study. There's no tangible vision in place. By the way, this study was done over two conferences. One was the Fetch DVM 360 conference, uh, people in the practice management track. Mm-hmm. and the other was over in the United Kingdom at the SPIVS VMG event. So these are all practices that are very interested in management, although we would not be going to CE events in the first instance. And of the ones that did have a vision, a massive number of them would have been one and done in the drawer, box ticked for something like a practice standards or accreditation scheme for VHMA or their VMAs or whatever trade body they were a member of. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to say with that as the backdrop. Now, the question of how, how much time should we be spending, it totally depends on the level of practice that you're at. So if you're getting your first leadership role and you're now going to be looking after a small team of vets, then it, you don't have to dedicate and you probably won't be able to dedicate an enormous amount of time to it. And the sorts of tasks you will be doing are much more likely to fall into the managerial category than the bigger picture leadership category. So it's actually worth just just having, you know, you've got, I, I call them technical skills, managerial skills, and leadership skills. Managerial skills are the more routine, day-to-day, checking in with people, you know, organizing schedules, dealing with sick leave, running payroll, things like that. They're, they're not, I don't think, in necessarily the leadership category of task, and they're very tactical things. And, and maybe that's another way you could put boundaries. You could say there's technical work, tactical work, and strategic work. Okay, because leadership, in a sense, is more like how you do things in an operating system, and managerial work is more like the the actual tools that you pick up to do the jobs, in some ways. But but let's whatever way you want to break that down. I would say junior people are more likely to pick up managerial tasks, and you you might be okay setting aside eighty twenty for something like that. The further up the food chain you go as as such, or the more senior you become in a business, the more genuine leadership things that you're required to do. So for me, the genuine leadership things are going to be planning your business. So strategic things like vision setting, like working out what's the organization chart going to look like three years from now? Who do we need? What skills do we need? 
like who are our customers, answering those really big questions, that senior leadership material, and then organizing your resources. So if you're going to take on a role of a chief veterinary officer, for example, you're going to be 100% focused on leadership, maybe 80% leadership with 20% management of a smaller team of, of senior execs that help you execute. For most people in practice, though, I think a good balance would be 60-20-20. 60% clinical, 20% managerial, 20% leadership. And the leadership activities are the ones that are really high value. That's your $110,000 an hour categories of task. So strategic stuff, $100,000 an hour. Working on that new marketing project that's going to bring you X number of clients or weed you out, some of these horrible clients make us all feel crappy, that's probably $10,000 an hour stuff. Working on recruiting great people could arguably be $100,000 an hour stuff, but certainly it's $10,000 an hour stuff. And I think the thing that's really hard to get through the, the heads of practice owners is that stuff doesn't come with an immediate dotted line or fast return on that. If you're thinking about creating a hiring process, that might not bring you results for six to 12 months. So there's no instant gratification. The emergency walks through the door, like the surgical case walks in the door, Meredith, the ER vet, Phil, the surgeon, you know, you're getting paid within two days of that and you get instant veterinary karma for that as well because you fixed or healed something. That is some really addictive veterinary crack cocaine right there. As soon as you take on a leadership mantle, your job stopped being that and your job started being managing and steering the ship of your business. And so if you neglect that, bad things will happen. And, and this is the framework you know, I was exposed to, and I think it worked really well just to get it into my head that was, what do you want to earn? Do you want to earn 10 bucks an hour? Do you want to earn 100 bucks an hour? Do you want to earn 1,000 bucks an hour? Or do you want to earn 10,000 or 100,000 bucks an hour? I know which of those categories I would like to be earning in. And you're going to get paid what you are worth. So the more time you spend working in those big ticket areas, the better. But when you're a small practice or you don't have a practice manager or you're just setting out in this journey, there's a bit of pain involved in doing this. Because if I don't do the work, who's going to earn the money to make payroll? That's the fear. Okay. But if you don't do the work, the pain's coming at you another way because of the unintentionality of your culture. And that is how en masse we've kind of gotten to where we are now, because we've dropped the ball for so long about how to look after graduates. We've spent all our time bitching and whining about millennials this, millennials that, and we haven't adjusted our cultures at all. And so over here in the United Kingdom, you still have people doing 10-minute appointments, putting graduates in, out into 10-minute appointments in a COVID world where they didn't get the last year of their tuition properly. And we're wondering why they're burning out. We're blaming them and calling them snowflakes. I mean. Really? Yep, that's good advice and good observations, sadly. So of all the things you've described, which factor would you say has the biggest impact on culture based on your research? Toxic behavior. Toxic behavior. It's funny. Toxic behavior is the one that if you, if you deal with toxic behavior, so practices on average, and we, we ask them to grade their own score, right? So, so I think when we, you ask somebody to grade their own culture score, there's going to be an nobody's going to grade themselves as horrible in a, in a survey. And we acknowledge this in the survey notes that there's obviously a subjectivity involved in this. But the average score for a practice where there were unresolved toxic behavioral issues was 6.2 versus practices that did deal with toxic issues. The average culture score out of 10 was, was a 7.5. So there was a, that was the biggest differential we got. 
of course, the enabler to that is creating time. Because if you're stuck on the sort of coal face, as it were, you're constantly working and working, working, you don't have time. And more than anything, you've got a really good excuse not to deal with those toxic behaviors. And that's all we need because it's an uncomfortable conversation. Give us a good excuse to get out of that conversation. We'll take it every time as humans because nobody likes conflict. And we're not very good and we're not very well trained at how to do conflict. So clinical ambushing, <laughs> we allow our managerial leadership time to get ambushed. Perhaps we ambush it ourselves by allowing clinical things to take over that time that if we actually invested it in dealing with that toxic behavior, then you know your culture score is going to jump up. And it's going to jump up because everyone else is going to breathe a big sigh of relief that they're not carrying that person or dealing with that sort of abuse in their day. And your culture just improved and their belief in you as a leader just improved as well. But we don't do it because we fear that we may not be able to hire somebody to fill that gap in this marketplace. Guys, we were, we've used that as an excuse forever. If you build a great culture uh, and you talk about that great culture, people will find their way to that great culture because they want to believe in your vision. If they get your why, they like the sound of your what, and they align with your hows, people will find you to work there. It's a leap of faith to an extent. So that would be one of the things that we want to do with this is to, with this data is to partly encourage and partly expose the damage that is being done by not taking on these behaviors, but mostly just give people permission to take these things on. Because we know that practices with good cultures, they're hiring. Not every practice is having a hiring problem right now. Like I posted a job advert for a new job for Roundwood's my own practice in London. And I had an applicant within 10 days. An applicant we're highly likely to hire. It seems like a great fit. How did we get them? Because somebody saw the job ad and recommended us as a place that was a great place to work. Same with nurses. Like it's taking on average anywhere from 10 to 12 months to hire a veterinarian. And I read a stat this week that said that something like you know, more than half of positions that are out there don't get filled, maybe more. I think it was a higher number. It was, it was a shocking number of veterinary positions don't get filled. What is that doing to your well-being as a leader if you can't fill that position? What is that doing to your time? So deal with your toxic behavior, create some time, craft a vision, and then hire people who are aligned with your vision. Yeah, recently I've seen numbers as high as 70% for unfilled veterinary positions. So. It's shocking. It's shocking. In, mm-hmm. in, in the UK, indeed, veterinary, veterinary surgeons just became the hardest position to hire on the job website, indeed, in the United Kingdom. Now, I don't think a lot of veterinarians are looking for jobs in Indeed, just mm-hmm. to caveat that. I think they look in trade journals and, and you know, associated websites. But it's still remarkable that, that a little niche industry like ours is, is being battered like this. So if you have a person in your practice who's exhibiting toxic behavior, what do you do about it? <laughs> that depends a lot on the toxic behavior and it depends a lot on the circumstances. So toxic behavior happens for a variety of reasons. It, it would be a very glib, very easy answer to just say fire them, but you must address it. And I think the first step is talk about the toxic behavior. Now, where this is hard for people is where we haven't actually created a cultural code. And you know, I've spoken about this loads of times, but and we, what we were talking about earlier is your cultural code is based on those values that are most important to you in your practice. 
Okay, so for us here at Vanex, innovation is one of our values. So we want people that will take risks. We want people that will experiment and try and fail and not be afraid to fail. We want people to push the envelope a little bit. One of our values is fun. But, but fun can mean different things to different people. So we've got to set some boundaries around, you know, that's got to be fun that everybody finds enjoyable. Uh, growth is a huge one of our values. So what does growth mean? How have we codified growth into our culture? Well, so we've defined what we mean by writing out little sentences that, that determine what that means to us. We've taken that and we've put it on to every desk, every station here has a printout of the values, like literally nailed on the workstation behind. You can't see this, but right up on the wall, our purpose is emblazoned on the wall above us. When we're having performance conversations or we're recognizing somebody doing something good, we try and reference the values. Once you've kind of got that fundamental, let's call it the 10 commandments according to your clinic, you've now got a, a standard against which you can measure behavior. It is really hard if you don't have that to call somebody out and go, look, that's toxic because it's, a, it's an objectivity contest. Uh, sorry, subjectivity contest, right? Now, some behavior is just toxic and unacceptable socially. And so, so bullying, for example, if somebody is a bully or somebody is racist, you know, that's, that's the, only, the only person I've ever fired in my life on the spot was for a racist comment, which was just, I was actually so shocked. It was just, it was just a pretty horrible moment all, all around. You, you have to address it, but it's usually not as extreme as that. And oftentimes toxic behavior happens because it's been either not necessarily enabled, but it's been allowed and it's become a norm. So it's never too late to call out and go, listen, can we talk about this thing here and offer feedback on what the thing is and, it, and you make it about the behavior. So Meredith, you know, I overheard a conversation with this person and, and that sounded a lot to me like bullying. You know, the impact of that on this person, I imagine was this, and that's not something that's consistent with, with our values. I don't actually know if that was your intent. So I'd love to check in with you what your intent was. But I would also like to make it clear that in this circumstances, I need you to find a different way to handle that. So could we explore that? Mm -hmm. Okay, so there's a performance conversation in a nutshell. And you now might hit the roof and decide, oh, this isn't for me because now I'm threatened. But quite often, bullies just don't have the tools, the social tools. They never learned how to get past screaming at their parents for something uh, as, a, as an adult. So you can coach them and work with them. And if it keeps going, well, you've done your bit and you document it and you help them find a place where they'll be happier because it's not going to be your practice because you become the guardian of culture. And I think that's a wonderful visual analogy for, for people is that all leaders, they just imagine you're like, have that shield over your shoulder and your sword in one hand and you are defending the culture like crazy from, from any attacks. And the attacks can come overtly or sometimes just because human beings, we're not always the best version of ourselves. So sometimes you set the tone yourself. And sometimes as a leader, you're going to drop beneath your cultural standard. And what's really important is you hold yourself accountable and you make good. And then you set the tone for how others will behave in your organization. But for those toxic people, you take it on, you take it directly, you check in on the behavior, you check in on the intent, you explain what normal must start to look like. And you help and you offer coaching to get there. And if they cannot get there or are unwilling to get there, then you ask them to leave your practice. Very good. Thank you. So trying to be very practical, 
what are some tips you use in your practice to attract and hire and retain uh, veterinarians, nurses, and even receptionists? I know everybody wants the easy button here. And in a market like this, there isn't an easy button. You know, the, the easy button five, 10 years ago was write a job ad that stood out. And you would, you know, maybe not five years ago, we're still having a hard time there, but certainly a decade ago, if you wrote a job ad that stood out, you'd get applications. If you were first into the Facebook channel and there was nobody else advertising there and you could tell a compelling story, you're going to get applications. The problem is that, that there are so many more vacancies than there are applicants that those channels have become very congested and sure you'll get a better response rate by writing a well-crafted advert, but I think it has to run deeper than that now. People are fed up. People are calling BS on, on what they're seeing in general practice. They are burning out. It is an existential crisis. It's not a recruitment crisis. It's a bloody existential crisis. And so this is why I think a longer term, good quality play here is to invest in culture by investing in your leadership skills. You'll, ge you'll generate a better culture and then you graph that on to, you know, we're all in such a hurry to market to clients and clients are falling in our clinics. <laughs> like we always need to do no marketing at the minute for clients, but who we do need to market to, and by market, I mean, tell our story authentically are the people who we've again thought deeply about who would be a good fit for our vision, our mission, and who align with our values. And then set about creating content that tells the story. Like, why is your purpose such? What is the mission you're going on and why is it exciting? What are your values and how do they play out in your practice? Like you could create a thousand different pieces of content around there and be publishing that, not just onto a job site. Of course, your job ads need to have these things in there, but it's word of mouth. It's your market. It's your, it's your community. It's your tribe of people who kind of get you that are going to do the loudest shouting about you and attract others in there. And yes, the job ad is the signal. It's a smoke signal you can put up in the sky that, that there's an opportunity here. But when the right people see that, they're going to be attracted to it. That is not an easy button fix. There's a ton of work involved in there. And it's work that might take a practice a year to get right. And you might have a culture that's a bit toxic because you've got to deal with some tough things. But if you go on that road and you deal with those tough things and you improve that culture, that's what I'd call employer branding. You can do good employer branding with a shitty culture and you'll get away with it until they walk in the door. But the real sweet spot is that good employer branding is about telling a story authentically of a place that actually people want to work. And if you can marry those two things up, you're not going to have any recruitment issues whatsoever because people want to do veterinary medicine. Vets, veterinary medicine is still really popular. Applications have never been higher than they are at the minute, mm -hmm. despite the debt issues that we've got going on. You know, we will fix the problems that are there, uh, the, the existential issues that happen in veterinary practice. We will fix them. But one of the most important places we have to fix is the culture. So I think gone are the days where you can just post an advert for six weeks that looks like everybody else's and talks about how you're a progressive practice and you've got all the toys and blah, blah, blah. I think you have to cast the net further but you have to tell the story for longer. And I think employer branding is a 24 seven, three, six, five kind of a deal. You can't just be doing it when you're hiring and you shouldn't anyway, because if you're working on leadership, one of those skills, you know, job two after doing the vision and flowing from the vision is to do your strategy. If you've got a mission over five years then you need some numbers to support that. And, as, and part of that planning will be what people do you need to support that? So you can actually be recruiting ahead of the curve.
again, there's a lot to get into there, but we're so reactive in veterinary medicine that if we're able to plan ahead, plan where we want the business to be in three years, that means we know who we'll need to hire in three years. And we plan intentionally and recruit intentionally against a set of values. Then a lot of the headaches, a lot of the dumpster fire issues that we see cropping up again and again and again in practices, they just don't happen because you've got people who want to work together and they know why they're showing up. I don't want it to sound like every day is like Christmas in a practice like that. It's not. There's still really tough stuff. Like veterinary medicine's hard. We're human, but you've got a team that, that trusts each other. And if you've got a team that trusts each other and can work through issues and has the skills to do that, that team will become resilient to problems and they'll get through things together really well. I'm sorry I don't have an easy button answer for you there. <laughs> I'm working on an easy button answer for you, to be completely honest, but it's not there yet. Well, the study is a good start, though. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so you said that there were some surprising findings in the study. And so can you tell us more about those? Yeah, well, the total shocker to me was the, the number of practices that have zero vision and, you know, being like just under 45%. What was quite a surprise to me, actually, was that six in 10 practices had difficulty recruiting. That meant that 40% of the market isn't having difficulty recruiting. So that was interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Four out of 10 had toxic behavior. So that meant quite a lot of practices didn't have toxic behavior. So that just challenged some of the narratives for me that were happening in the marketplace. But the thing that I liked most that came out of the whole thing was just the average culture score. It's a cumulative effect when you do the four things, defining vision, creating time to work on leadership priorities, addressing toxic behavior, and attracting and retaining clinical talent. If you can do those four things in your practice, then you're Average culture score is an eight out of 10. If you, if you have none of those things happening in your practice, then you have a 5.3 out of 10 culture score. That to me is a very big swing. Mm -hmm. Remember, these are assessments that will bias to people ranking themselves a bit too high in a cohort of people who are already focused and interested on leadership. I would suggest that the mean culture score in veterinary practices sit somewhere south of five. I can't give you a number to support that, but what was really exciting for us in this study was to be able to define some specific actions and to put some numbers that should justify investment, taking that leap of faith in stepping off the hamster wheel on working on vision and you know, doing these things that are traditionally hard for vets to do because they don't have that instant payoff but the culture score is the big payoff in the long term for everybody. Yeah, and the sustainability that comes from that too. Yeah. My favorite word, intentionality and sustainability are my two favorite words of the last two years. They really are. So Dave, we could talk to you all day and listen to that sexy voice all day, but unfortunately <laughs> we have some patience to see. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you've got a vision to map out, Phil. But knowing you as I do and, and the excellent operator you are, then I'm sure you already have one. Yeah, I'll, I'll work on it tomorrow. <laughs> so what question do you think we should have asked you? It's not very often that I leave such a long time in an answer. And the, I think the, the gap is... 
simply verifying in my head that the things that need to be said, I've, I've said them in things that are back Maybe one of the questions would be, you know, is this dearth of actual actionable insight that we've got in veterinary medicine, I think is a problem for us. And that's, that's one of the things that, that I've sort of decided to commit to doing. You know, I've never considered myself and I don't really consider myself an academic. And this might be a form of imposter syndrome, I realize, but I always had the sense of, you know, wow, you know, am I really knowledgeable enough to be speaking to these subjects? And it's bothered me for a number of years, which might sound utterly ridiculous, but it's true. There's an absolute fascinating curiosity with the human condition that exists in me. And teasing out numbers and insight is something that's becoming increasingly interesting. So, you know, I want to be able to share data that's got some numbers behind it isn't just opinion because i think that's the data that we need to hear that's the way that we're going to change this for the better you know historically i've shared things that have worked well in my practice i wanted to aggregate more data and i think that's the direction that i'm going to keep going in is to really be able to generate meaningful content that changes things and be taken seriously you know you've got to research and publish a bit more so i don't think that was a question phil and I, I'm not even sure it was a worthy answer, but that's what I've got for you. I mean, aside from, are Scotland going to make it to the World Cup? I mean, probably not, all things balanced. <laughs> but that is definitely important. Or how awesome are my purple glasses? I mean, why didn't you ask that? They're pretty awesome. <laughs> but neon pink tinging as well, hey? Like, <laughs> it's, it's a cry for help. We're going to need a screenshot of that. <laughs> no. So Dave, just endless pearls from this discussion, and I mean that very sincerely. And so before I come to our last question, where can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, so, so to connect with me directly, you know, Instagram is probably the place I go to the most. I, I try very hard and guard my mental well-being by not spending too much time on social because I do find it a, a place that affects me. But I, I do like getting comments and I'll interact with comments on Instagram pretty readily. So that's that, Dr. Dave Nichol, N-I-C-O-L, no H's, no double L's, no S's, no I-C-K-L-E-S. Nickel, not a dime, all of that. <laughs> oh, but the, the report, and I, I encourage people to read the report, it's freely available to download. Like we're, we're going to publish everything that we, we come across and, and we're allowed to publish because we do a lot of work with companies as well. And we're not allowed to publish all of that stuff. But this is this is independently produced and completely ours to publish. Um, and I've got to credit uh, my uh, co-author, Dermot, who did a lot of the data crunching, Dr. Dermot McInerney. It's available on vetexinternational.com. Um, there's a resources section. It can be downloaded there. I think it's on the blog as well. So we just want to get that in the paws of as many practice owners as possible to give a really friendly kick in the bum to invest time in the right things and to put some of the clinical stuff down. All right, love it. So now we're at our final question, Dave. What is your best advice for veterinary professionals? Oh man, that's such a huge question. And it, it's almost too big a question <laughs> because there's so much and it depends on which bit you are at. My, you know what my best advice is? Remember you're more than just a veterinary professional. And I don't mean that just is diminishing the veterinary professional bit of it. it's incredible it's an important job it's a job with amazing meaning and you worked hard to 
to make that come true. Whether you're a veterinarian, uh, a veterinary technician or nurse or reception team member, like you're all integral parts of this team, but you're so much more than just being part of this industry. And that's really important that we find ways to engage with other parts of our being, our lives, because that's a big part of being energized and making this sustainable as well. So all of this matters, but it, it is still just work. It's not the be all and the end all. So don't forget to enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying it, there's lots of options and there's lots of other bits of your life you can enjoy. Well said. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time and knowledge. I'm starting to see things a little bit differently than I used to. I think it's easier for vet professionals to just do what we do. It's easier to see yet another patient because that's what we're we think we're born to do, right? We're trained to do. It's yep. much harder to dedicate time to management or leadership because that's not our default mode. This is something we have to physically take time to work on. And we're so busy that we don't typically take the time. I mean, the stats you mentioned are pretty compelling. It, they are. And I have to say that for some people listening, they just won't want to do that. And that's completely fine, Phil. If that's you, hire that talent in. I mean, it's one of the most, I think the two most powerful leadership lessons that I've learned in action in the last, not just year, but six months, but certainly 2021. Hire really good people and then get the hell out of their way. You know, give them the tools to do something and the, and the energy and the inspiration and then get the hell out of their way where you can. You've got to get people to a level where you can trust them to do that. But when they're there and give them the chance to, to fly. So get out of their way. But the other thing is hiring people who love doing that, which you don't. If your magic zone is being in the OR or being in the ER, then you go in there and you hire somebody. But don't trample on their leadership things. Don't take over. Don't undermine them. Just make sure to get out of their way or support them. But yeah, do it or buy it in. Either way, do what works for you. But definitely don't ignore leadership. That's a perfect way to end. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. A real pleasure. Thank you so much, Dave. If you liked today's episode, hit the follow or subscribe button. Until next time, take care and continue your path to financial success. The information provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only. It should not be considered legal or financial advice. Consult with a legal or financial professional before making any investment decisions.